Hey everybody and welcome back to Mocha's in the Meantime. In honor of Holocaust Remembrance Day, we're really um, fortunate to be actually having a second generation Holocaust survivor on this podcast today. Um, We thought it was a really timely episode to post on this day and we are really excited to share this very inspiring story with all of you. Hey everyone, I'm Rachel. And I'm Sarah. And we're sisters who just so happen to be best friends. We're here to unpack all of the unexpected moments that come with early adulthood and hope to uncover a more meaningful life, one conversation and cup of coffee at a time. This This is Mocha's Mocha's in the Meantime. Hey everybody, it's Rachel and Sarah and thanks so much for tuning in. We're very excited to be sharing this special episode with all of you today. Yeah, really, we just want to thank you for being here and for taking the time to listen to this very important story that um, our dear family friend Steve Koek was gracious enough to share with us. Yeah, so a little bit about how we know Steve. Um, Him and my dad um, formed a very close friendship in high school, and their entire friend group has pretty much stayed in contact for Mm -hmm. all of these years. And um, just growing up, I feel like we've always kind of seen Steve and that whole friend group around at different events. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've always enjoyed getting to know them and this was a really cool way to connect with Steve over such an important topic. So I think what really inspired this episode actually was like years ago before this podcast even was made. um, Me and Sarah had the fortune to be able to hear Joe Koek, Steve's father, talk about his experience firsthand as a Holocaust survivor Mm -hmm. and from that day and like till now I still remember how impactful that experience was yeah and I think it's also been really special to see how Steve has carried his father's legacy forth um, and spoken in front of audiences as a second generation holocaust survivor and so we thought he would just be a great guest to not only relay his father's story but to also just talk a little bit about what that's been like um speaking in front of people about such a difficult topic but such an important one we want to keep this intro short and sweet because we're going to be diving into a lot of important topics in this episode and we don't want to distract from it so we hope you enjoy So we are so excited to be joined by Steve today. Um, We are just so thankful that he's here to be able to relay his dad's story and just talk more about kind of remembering history and the Holocaust in general. So thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to just share a little bit about yourself or introduce yourself at all? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really impressed with what uh, you ladies have done with this podcast so far. A little bit of a history for us. Uh, is that, of course, I've known your father since the first week of my freshman year in high school. Uh, We were in theater together. He's been one of my very closest and dearest friends for 40 years now, sang at my wedding. Um, And I've watched you girls grow up mostly from afar. I was in Arizona for the good portion of the time you guys were growing up. Um, But it's been a joy to see you grow up from afar and to see the young ladies you've become and it's really very impressive so um, I've been impressed with what you've done with this podcast so far and obviously a very important topic that's near and dear to my heart and I'm just so glad that you asked me to join you today oh yeah thank you thank you so much for being here we're really excited to um to hear your dad's story once again we actually had the privilege to come and see him in person um speak about his story and so um yeah well, that would first of all, even before I get into it, that's really heartwarming that uh, it made such an impact on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was several years ago, so you were young yeah. kids at that point. Yeah. And that's really one of the reasons that I did it. I just rented out a hall at the Wheeling Park District just so friends and family and uh, could hear his story. Mm-hmm. And because he had just, you know, and speak as I'll, as I'll get into in a minute, he just would speak at the museum. Uh, mostly for strangers. So um, mm-hmm. uh, that's great that you remember it and that it had such a, a lasting impact on both of you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It really did. It was the 
It was the second time I'd heard a survivor speak in person, but mm-hmm. the first time I was quite young, so I didn't really remember it as much as um, as your dad's story, and it really did make an impact on, I think, yeah, on both of us. Both of us, as well yeah. as even, like, our family members. Like, I remember my aunt was there and oh, yeah. was really yeah, impacted, sure. too, so She's I mentioned think... it several times over the years. Yeah, so, yeah for sure. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. I'll just, uh, I'll just get into it. I... Um... My dad was a featured speaker for over 10 years. Uh, He shared his Holocaust survival story hundreds of times at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center in Skokie, uh, as well as remote locations all across the country. Uh, He died suddenly in December of uh, 2015 at the age of 85. And that was actually one month to the day before he was to share his story with the world at the United Nations General Assembly in New York. As a second generation survivor and speaker, it is my hope to carry on his legacy and continue to share his story so that this generation and the generations that follow uh, can learn from his experiences and the lessons that he he taught us all. Uh, Fortunately for me and for my audiences, he left behind the transcript that he used to read from when he spoke to groups. I now use it as a guide through his story and I quote his very words throughout my sharing of his incredible life's journey. My dad had two sisters who also survived the Holocaust and are still alive today. Uh, My aunts feature prominently in both my father's story and and my retelling of it. Uh, My aunt Henny lives in Holland where she's lived all of her life. And my aunt Eva uh, lives on, on the north side of Chicago. The three of them, my dad and my two aunts, were among the hidden children of Holland during World War II. My father was born on October 30th, 1930 in The Hague, Uh, where he lived with his family until World War II came to Holland. My grandparents focused on family and education. They enrolled the kids in private school, even though they were not wealthy by any means. Their home was warm and full of love. My dad described his family life before the war as, quote, uh, a lovely early childhood, end quote, never thinking it could change. On May 14, 1940, the Germans went back on a promise not to bring the Netherlands into World War II, and the Nazis invaded Holland. The Dutch government surrendered, and Jews were forced to register with the new government. Before long, the Jewish people in Holland were forced to wear those yellow stars with the word Jew on it. The situation for all Jews in Holland would only get worse from there. These are my dad's words. On October 18, 1942, which would make him 11 years old, my family received a letter ordering us to report to a train station to be transported to a work camp. Later, as an adult, I came to realize that my parents must have been laying plans for an escape for a very long time, unbeknownst to my sister. Because the next day, I am leaving home with a resistance guy. She is a total stranger, but we talk as she takes me to the end of the street, about three homes from our home. We turn right and keep on walking until we get to the home where I will spend the next few months in hiding. Being only 12 years old, I still have no idea what to expect or what is going on. I do not turn around to wave goodbye to my parents. I do not kiss them goodbye. Looking back, now that I'm in my 80s, I am wondering what must have been going on in my mind. and More than that, what my parents must have been thinking. I wish I could have dealt with our goodbye better. For years after the war, I punished myself for not dealing with our parties better. My parents hand over their children they love to strangers who they must trust. None of us knows what the future holds for us. We never see our parents again. my My grandparents went into hiding too. And when the family didn't show up at the train station as ordered, the Nazis went looking for them. They broke in and ransacked the house, destroyed all of the furniture, and threw the rest of their belongings into the trash by the street. After they left, a neighbor picked up the photos and other items that had been discarded and saved them for the family until after the war was over. I use a a whole bunch of pre-war photos normally in my presentation, and all of those photos exist only because of the quick thinking and generosity of that non-Jewish neighbor. The children wound up hiding in the top level of a three-story home with many other children the home's owner was also hiding. The middle level of the building was the living area for the family who was hiding them, and the lower level was a classroom. But the situation was much like Anne Frank and her family, only 
their parents were not there with them. Throughout the entire day, the children upstairs would have to stay quiet so no one would hear them below, even to the point of not wearing shoes or flushing the toilet when they went to the bathroom. The children would come down for breakfast and then scamper back upstairs before the school day began. My dad's words, we were strongly discouraged from even looking out the window. The roof had eaves, so it was unlikely that anyone looking up would have been able to see us, even if we stood at the windows. But it was too great a chance to take, so we mostly kept away from the windows, keeping ourselves further isolated from the outside world. <clears throat> there were a lot of children packed in that small space, and there was very little food, and they had to be quiet all day. My Aunt Eva describes the woman who owned the house as being a mean woman who did it more for the money the, my, uh, the parents gave them to hide the children rather than doing it as a good deed. But just to be clear, she saved their lives either way every day they were there. Now, add to the fact that my father and his sisters were about a mile away from their home with no idea whether the house was even still standing. Now, they had heard that their parents were betrayed, arrested, and sent away, but were still not certain of their fate. My dad's words. Soon I was separated from my two sisters also. An escort from the resistance brought me to the train station and we boarded a train together. During the course of this very long trip, I changed trains a number of times. Every time that we changed trains, my escorts changed. None of these escorts knew one another or knew each other's names. They identified each other through secret signals or code words. That way, if one of the resistance fighters had been captured, they could not have given away the names of all the other fighters or the children they were transporting. By the time I reached the end of the line, far out in the countryside, my original escorts had no idea where I had gone or what my new name was. A very kind farming family took in my father under the pretense that he was a distant relative who had been sent to the countryside to be safe, get fed, and live a better life until after the war was over. This couple created a brand new identity for my father and treated him as family. They enrolled him in school and they took him to the church and uh, taught him how to work the farm, like milking the cows and gathering the eggs. His words. One day during the harvest season of 1943, I was bringing in a load of peas we had just harvested to the market. I was transporting the peas with a horse and wagon. As I was walking beside the wagon, my wooden shoe got caught in one of the wagon wheels and I tripped and fell, breaking my leg. I was brought to the hospital and spent the next six weeks in the children's ward. On the second or third day after I had arrived at the hospital, the Nazis had a roundup. They marched into the village where I had been staying. For a tiny village, they were sheltering a very large number of Jews and other escapees. Every single person who was hiding and every single person who was sheltering them was taken to the front of the farmer house and shot on the spot. If I had not tripped and broken my leg, I would have been killed also. After his leg healed, my father was moved to an interim hiding place in the city of Groningen, coincidentally his father's birthplace in the northeast of the country. He was then brought to live in Friesland and wound up living with a family in the town of Ostersee. His words, my new hosts were kind people. A father was the director of a dairy farm, a factory. He and his wife had two sons. One was a married adult and one was my age. Once again, I attended school in a two room schoolhouse with two teachers. And I even attended high school for a while. During these years, I had no contact with my sisters and parents and began to think about them and worry about them a lot. It had already been about three years that I had been living as a hidden child. I began to wonder if my sisters and parents were okay. Then on June 6, 1944, my dad and his host family listened to the BBC radio about the Allies invading France. The war would be over. Uh, the war would be over soon, but it was not over yet. As he put it, the liberation of the Netherlands seemed to happen very slowly. The, Alli the Allies didn't come straight to the town I was staying in. They had to come the long way around. In fact, a nearby town was liberated a week before my town, and the older teenagers used to sneak out at night and celebrate in that town. Then they would sneak back home the next morning. In May of 1945, the Nazis capitulated and the Dutch were finally free. 
A book mentions my dad as the young Jewish boy hidden in the area where the factory stood during the war. He is also referenced in a 2002 newspaper article about the dairy factory buildings being torn down. The chimney from the factory still remains to this day. Now, my aunts, Eva and Henny, had very different experiences than their brother's experiences after they were separated from the initial hiding place. The girls went south and my dad went north. Now, I don't know the specific reasons they had for separating them. Perhaps it was easier to hide them if they were not together. But I do know that the resistance, or the underground, as Aunt Eva calls them, was very organized, smart, and determined to do everything they could to save as many Jews as possible, especially the children. On all three of them, my father and my two aunts, look at those resistance fighters as their heroes, the men and women who literally saved their lives again and again. And for many of them, it cost them their lives. After the war was over, the girls joined my father at an Amsterdam orphanage. They were the first females in the orphanage and were treated wonderfully by the staff. And until more girls joined, they had the whole floor to themselves. The owner of the orphanage paired Eva up with a wealthy couple from Chicago who were in town to look at the facilities they had made donations to during the war. Mr. and Mrs. Bloomberg took a liking to Eva and sponsored a trip for her to come to America. The original plan was for her to stay in America for a year, but she pretty quickly knew that she wanted to stay a whole lot longer than that. Soon she had a good job, lived in a wonderful suburban home with a loving and welcoming family. She was living a life she never dared dream of while moving from hiding place to hiding place, always fearful of being exposed and never knowing if her parents were alive or dead. My Aunt Eva has lived in the Chicago area ever since. Now, meanwhile, my father was also treated very well at the orphanage. He was a member of a group of older teenagers they called the Big Guys, the harmless gang that would strut around the orphanage bossing the, other, the younger orphans around. It was during this time that they received a letter saying that their parents had died in the concentration camp at Auschwitz. Well, that was enough for his sister, Eva. My father was not completely convinced and for years had hoped that they had somehow survived and that he would see them again after such an abrupt burning. My mother related stories from early in their relationship of my father thinking he saw his parents in like a, a crowded airport terminal or concert hall, only to have to relive his loss all over again after realizing, of course, it was not them. Many years had passed before he fully accepted his parents had died. There's not much at all known about the fates of my grandparents, other than several recordings of their deaths at Auschwitz, two years apart, and their names were on a memorial uh, in an Amsterdam park. I actually recently learned that my grandmother uh, perished the day that they arrived at Auschwitz. Now, years later, in the telling of his story to groups at the museum and elsewhere, my dad was still haunted by the loss of his parents, and you could tell he missed them dearly, even after so much time had passed. His words. I never got to say goodbye to my parents. Where are they? It is the last days of their lives. They are probably not together. I have no idea how much they must suffer. I want to be with them one more time and talk to them. I wish I knew more about all they did to save our lives. I wonder why I am still living and able to tell this story and share my feelings with you. I am 12 years old and I walk out of the house with a resistance helper and I never look back. Now I wish I had turned around and waved goodbye, but maybe that would have been dangerous. I often think of my parents. I have outlived them by many years. I wonder why. Is it proper to wish my parents rest in peace? I hope so. I love them more than they ever knew. I still do. About a year after my Aunt Eva came here, the Bloomberg sponsored my dad's trip to America as well, getting him a job as a custom tailor for a large department store in downtown Chicago. A few years after that, he met a beautiful and delightful Chicago gal at a Jew Jewish singles dance. The couple married and had three sons, and I am the middle son of that family. Our family moved to suburban Niles when I was a young boy, and my family owned an opera, I mean, my father rather, owned and operated several different tailor shops and dry cleaning stores. 
My brothers and I knew very little about our father's experiences during the Holocaust while we were growing up. Only secondhand stories he would have told my mother or shared with the Bloombergs, who we always considered our grandparents, by the way. It turns out many of the stories I heard or remembered were wrong or misremembered. At least some of that was by design. The people who sheltered my father and helped him begin his adult life specifically told him not to tell people about what had happened. He was told that people would not believe him, and even if they did, they would not care. He kept that hidden child within him for most of his adult life as he assimilated to a new country, learned a new language, and took on the awesome responsibility of raising a family, rarely bringing up his experiences during the Holocaust. Then, over a decade ago now, he heard a man named Sam Harris share his Holocaust survivor story at his synagogue. He approached Mr. Harris after his speech and introduced himself, told him he was one of the hidden children of Holland. Mr. Harris asked if he was speaking and sharing his experiences. When my father told him that he was not, Mr. Harris put his hand on his shoulder and said, you must. If not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Dad began speaking shortly after that, sharing his story and the lessons he learned to thousands of kids and adults in the last years of his life. And as I said earlier, he was invited to share his story with the world at the General Assembly of the United Nations. After he passed, it occurred to me that while it took a lifetime for him to come to grips with what had happened during the Holocaust, to both him and his family, my family, he was no longer hidden physically or emotionally. Getting to speak and share his story was, enabled him to bring him out of hiding and into the light to face those horrors of the Holocaust head on. And in sharing his story, the hopes of preventing these sorts of human atrocities in the future. At the time of his death, my dad was not one of the hidden children. Joe Kovac was free at last. Now, he ended his speech with some final thoughts that I'd like to share with you two today. What the story of the Holocaust tells us is that there are people who hate other people so much that they will kill them only because they believe different things or look different. My story tells us that there are also people who will do anything to save others, including risking their own lives. My wish is that you will grow up and belong to the second group. And I know that the two of you ladies have. Wow, that was so powerful to hear yeah. again. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Yeah, wow. Especially like that ending note, I think really sums up like how this tragedy showed the absolute worst and the absolute best in humanity. For sure. And, you know, that's what my dad wanted to get across. And he worked with mm -hmm. a woman named Amanda Friedemann at the museum uh, who trained everybody, trained both my dad and myself, actually. And he would come to her every so often and say, you know, I want to tweak this or I want to change this. And at one point he came to her and said, and he made that last part stronger that people want to kill other people because of this. And he asked her, is that too harsh? You know, is that too, especially for children, is that too much? And first she said, it's your story. You tell it the way you want to tell it. And yeah. she also said that that is what happened. Yeah. That is, that is the fact. So that's, you know, that's, that's the way it is. So yeah, I was always moved. I, you know, I saw him speak uh, maybe a dozen times or more and that always, always was very moving the way he ended it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like in hearing it again, and it has been a little while, like just thinking more about what the people who were helping were doing. I think I've, I've really, I haven't really thought about it as much until now like they had these secret signals and like everyone was so committed to doing this and they didn't even know these people that they were helping these children and it's like i don't know it's just very powerful to think that people were were risking everything and, and anonymously i mean you know that there, yeah. there's no way my dad would ever be able to pick out the people that helped them you know first it was so traumatic to begin with but yeah. uh, they just did it and, and you know the other thing that we need to understand you know in 2020 was that there were no computers, there were no communication tools. It was all done on the fly. They didn't know right. if yeah. the next step they took were the last. 
you know, mm-hmm. and especially like you said, the people that help, um, you know, they risked their lives to help people they didn't know just to do what was right. And most of them were not successful, mm-hmm. to be honest. You know, you look at it, there were um, uh, 80% of the Jewish population in the Netherlands was wiped out. Only 20% mm-hmm. remained. And mm-hmm. yet my dad and his two sisters who were separated, all three of them survived. That, that's yeah, the ama- amazing that right is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Have you been to the Netherlands at all? No, I have not. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's been a lifelong dream. My brother, my mm-hmm. older brother, Phil, who I know that you, you have met at some point over the last years, um, he went the summer before my dad passed. He went to, with him to Holland. And actually, there's a picture that I use in my presentation of my dad, my brother, my aunt, and her family standing in front of that chimney I described mm-hmm. uh, where my dad stayed uh, near the mm-hmm. end there. Wow. Um, and they always say that it's, you know, it points up in memory of the people who died and in honor of the people that were sheltered in the area. Mm-hmm. And especially the way the frame, the picture is framed, it almost looks like it's just, the chimney is kind of given a middle finger to the Nazis and to, to Hitler <laughs> and to, all the people that harm them but yeah it's very profound and uh like i said it's still there and i have not been there but one of my dreams since i've started speaking was to share this story from that location yeah um, sure. wow. my initial my initial dream was to do it in dutch but that's not gonna it's a very <laughs> very hard language uh, <laughs> but yeah we'll, we'll get there and, you know we were actually in the, in the beginning stages of planning a, a trip over there when mm-hmm. when uh, covid struck so oh man wow. start that over again but yeah Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, and I've met, obviously, my, my aunt, uh, Henny, has been here a number of times. She came for my bar mitzvah, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've met my cousins. They, they've been over here, too. So, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, the dream is, is to get over there and to see all these sites and uh, the, you know, the uh, traditional homeland of, of my dad. So I'll get there. I think that would be really powerful. That was a question I was going to ask mm-hmm. as well. Sure. Um, and, you know, my brother toured the area with him and his and my aunt um, and saw the, the place where they hid and their, their initial home and, wow. and all the area. And it's very emotional. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things for my dad and, and my aunt and others who moved here and other places after the war is that they don't have to see it every day. I mean, my aunt and my mm-hmm. uncle and my cousins that live in Amsterdam and then all over Holland, they, they're walking through these places where it actually happened every day, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a lot more powerful and it affects them a lot differently yeah. than other people do. Mm-hmm. What made your aunt want to stay in Holland over coming to the U.S.? Yeah, I don't know for sure, but I think, you know, part of it, certainly she she met a man and they got mm-hmm. married and they've been married for 50 years. That was yeah. super part of it. Uh, she was the youngest. I think she was traumatized in a different way than the older older one was. The older older one were. In fact, there's a story that I that I, that I haven't told in a while in my presentation about my aunt Henny that after the war she was staying with a Christian family as my dad was, and there was a court battle. The family wanted her to stay with them, and the leaders of the Jewish community wanted her to get on with her life as a Jew. I uh, didn't want that suppressed. And my aunt, my aunt Eva, the oldest one, went to court and agreed to the only way that they would agree to, have, to take her away from the family is if my aunt agreed to go and live in this orphanage with them mm-hmm. and they would mm-hmm. all live together. Um, so that, you know, but again, I, I don't know how much she remembers from being that young. Yeah. Uh, but she yeah. had no, she doesn't talk about it. She doesn't, uh, really acknowledge it too much, the war and all that happened. Um, and actually her husband, my uncle Yost, is an outspoken opponent of speaking and talking about it. And there are people in Holland who just don't want it. They just don't think it's um, it's helpful and that, that we need to move on. And I've had many email exchanges with him over the years since I started doing this. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, I mean, I see his side, um, but I, uh, I think that ultimately it really has to be talked about, especially with other things going on in the world um, that continue to go on. So there is that faction that doesn't that wants it kind of suppressed, for lack of a better word. 
Mm. Um, but she, you know, she wanted to stay there with the family and with her homeland. And uh, my aunt, you know, was <clears throat> to her. I'm seeing you know, as a young woman. It seemed like a flash that one minute she was dodging the Nazis, and the next minute she's sitting in a lawn chair by the by a pool in Winnetka, not a mm-hmm. care in the world. You know, so it's you know, understandable yeah. why she wouldn't want to go back. <laughs> yeah, she, she went back to visit, but she never never went back to live there. Yeah. Yeah. And going off of what you were talking about with your uncle, I think it was really interesting and like heartbreaking to hear that people did silence your dad um, after the war was over and kind of, I mean, it sounds like it was out of protection, but the fact that people, that people thought that they wouldn't be listened to or believed, um, I don't know, that really struck me as well. Yeah, it's yeah. a tough call. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's a tough call. And as I take to tell, and other people ask me about that too. And what we need to understand in context is that these are the people that obviously were trying to help them. Yeah. And I think, and I thought about it a lot, and talked about it with people a lot. And I think that it was the right call for the moment mm-hmm. because he didn't want to be defined as the Jew who made it through the Holocaust. He wanted to be, you know, he wanted to make his name as his own person. Yeah. Um, and especially with the country decimated and losing his parents um, and then ultimately moving to America. Uh, I think at the time it was the right call. And then what happened was um, in Skokie, where I went to high school um, and at that time was predominantly a Jewish community. um, Nazis wanted to march down in downtown Skokie. And there was a big Mm. uh, uh, buffalo about it. There was, um, uh, news and eventually they were, I think they were granted permission, but they never, I mean, it was like four of them. So it wasn't even that, that big of a, yeah. uh, that big of a group, but that really was what started the movement of, of survivors speaking and sharing their mm-hmm. stories. And it kind of started out in like, uh, somebody's garage or whatever, but just sharing and opening up and saying, and realizing that if we don't speak up, it's going to happen again. And that was the early forming of the museum, which began as like a storefront in downtown Skokie. And that started the Speakers Bureau. And at that time, my dad was not a member, was not active, but we were going to high school and your father can remember this as well. We went to a theater conference right around that time and we're specifically told not to talk about this incident. And that if anybody Mm -hmm. asked, just say, we don't know anything about it, we're not involved. Uh, So it was a national story. There was even a TV movie uh, about it um, wow. and at the very end of the the main exhibit in the Holocaust in the Illinois Holocaust Museum there's a big placard that explains what happened and the story about it and and all that so um, that's how they all got started but then it took my dad another 20 years before he started speaking mm. so I think one question we also have is you growing up with your dad um did you ever feel like you were affected by your father's experience? Or I guess you were saying you kind of heard bits and pieces, but you didn't have the full picture until you were much older. So do you think that kind of played a role in how you were raised or mm-hmm. even just the relationship you had with him growing certainly, up? Certainly. I think that going back to, you know, get on with your life and don't, you know, make it, it define you. I think that he worked very hard to... to give us as normal a childhood as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, moving out to the suburbs and you know, uh, from the city and, and, and doing all that. And um, I think that he, you know, cherished the moments of having a family um, because it, I mean, his childhood was cut at 12 and you could see, you could feel certainly in retrospect that our bar mitzvahs were extra special for him because he never got that. In fact, that reminds me of a story that my, uh, the last time they heard from my grandparents was a letter that they got. Um, And in that letter, it said, you know, I know we missed your bar mitzvah, but once we're all back together as a family, we'll celebrate, you know, and obviously that was, that was the last time we ever heard, heard from him. But, um, So I think that he, and again, certainly in retrospect, that I think that he relished those moments 
in us. Um, and as it got past you know, the time where he was older than where he outlived his father. I mean, I kind of remember that, um, talking to him about that. So, but as far as specific stories, no, I mean, we were like, like you said, we'd heard stories from our grandma and grandpa Bloomberg and stuff. He would tell my mom and you know, the relatives. Um, but a lot of that, like I said, was wrong and, and kind of clouded. I mean, I had a memory very young age, uh, a story, memory of a story that they would, uh, in the middle of the war, they would crawl out on the edge to, uh, out of their window from the orphanage and pee off the edge and they could get, you know, then the spotlights would be right and they would avoid the spotlights and all that. Well, they were in the orphanage after the war. So that story was complete bunk. I don't even know yeah. where I heard it or how I heard it. <laughs> Yeah. But I also, but it's not just the kids, because I remember I went and visited my grandma Bloomberg in Florida a couple of years before she passed. I was in high school, I think. And we were talking and she was absolutely convinced that my dad had stayed in the same attic as the Franks. Really? And, and that she knew them, that he knew her and all this. And, and they, they were in different cities. They didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. uh, but that tells you how the stories get truncated and how and you know to tie it back to the original kind of theme of, of what we're talking about today the importance of of keeping those stories going and and, and keeping them as accurate as possible mm -hmm. you know, that you know it's, it's more important than ever um to get those out i mean you, i'm sure you all did the uh, I don't remember what they called it, but when you were a little kid, you sat in a circle and the telephone game, I think it was called, the teacher would tell the first person something about the time mm -hmm. it got all the way there. It was yeah. a completely different story. You know, so we have to be very careful when we share these stories and pass them on to the next generation. And that's what the second generation uh, speakers program is all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like the source of the info is the most important person to listen to. And even like what that guy, I forgot his name, said to your dad, like who else will tell it if you don't? Right. And hmm. maybe like if someone else told it, they wouldn't have all the facts straight. So it's important that people were open about it. For sure. And that's why it's so important and moving that I have the, the book that he read from, you know, I uh, in addition to, I mean, I took the class, the training class, I think there were 12 of us in there. And then recently they did another training class where there were even more like 25 people from the next generation. And I was tutoring a couple of them, uh, kind of helping them along. And you know, my main criticism or main note for both of them was always, I need to hear more about your dad. or I need to hear more about your aunt. Um, the story is about them. It's fascinating that you were affected and that's it, different from what we're talking about today but when you're speaking and representing your family that's what it's about and you need to keep it as accurate and, and close to their experiences as possible and I mean I have a leg up on everybody I mean having this book um, mm -hmm. that, that he literally I mean it was the book that he read from the last time he spoke um, mm -hmm. so it's it's really impactful to have that and it keeps me grounded in mine and my retelling and my sharing to know that it's it's not about me it's about him mm -hmm. um and that's that's where i try to try to, try to keep it so mm -hmm. yeah and i feel like having his direct words hearing about like those thoughts he had about his parents like wishing he had you know turned around said goodbye i feel like that also really allows the story to or I guess allows other people to empathize with something that seems so, it's, it seems like so long ago and it really wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. And having those direct quotes, I think, can really get through to audiences as well who are listening and like hopefully will like help with efforts to stop something like this. I mean, things like this are happening, unfortunately, but to kind of get a generation going that won't stand for something like this. As Absolutely. And that, that's, that's the way you do it is to make it personal. Yeah. Exactly. And one of the, the advantages my dad had on his story, and first of all, he loved to um, speak to the little kids. That was his favorite, was the, was the younger audience. He always connected with them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of that, I don't want to dive too much into his psyche, but you know, his, his, uh, basically his childhood was ripped from him the day that he left the house. 
And I think part of him always stayed in there. We all three of us were Cub Scouts and we all three went on to Boy Scouts, but he stayed as a Cub Scout leader. And I think that's where he, you know, that's where he felt the most impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but his story is perfect for little kids because mm-hmm. there's no violence. There's no graphic death. There's nothing that he saw. And yet it's still a terrifying, uh, frightening experience that any kid could relate to walking out the house and not seeing their parents again. It's every kid's nightmare, you know? Uh, So for him to be able to share that and be completely honest and tell the whole story without freaking them out too much and giving them literal nightmare, and that's not the goal. The goal is not to make them scared to go to sleep at night. It's to give them wisdom and and exposure to the story. And I think my dad's story for the younger ones is that perfectly, I mean, I've heard, you know, I mean, I heard those those 10 people I trained with and then the other group. And then, I mean, I've heard dozens of Holocaust stories and there are horrific tales that adults really need to hear. So that's why, that's why my dad, I mean, after he died, I went into his office and there were stacks of Manila, Manila envelopes filled with thank you notes from little kids from when he had spoken to teachers made them write the notes, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of them were very heartfelt and uh, he really connected with the younger generation, which is the generation that needed to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think his story is also so powerful because I think at least like in history class, when we learn about the Holocaust, we focus more on mm-hmm. what happened in the camps and like the atrocities, which obviously are very important to learn about too. But I think it's important to also remember how many people were, even if they didn't make it to the camps, like were so horribly affected by this. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it just puts it into perspective that like pretty much everyone was very intensely impacted, even if they didn't Mm -hmm. end up going to the camps or losing their life. Mm -hmm. For sure. You know, my aunt Eva is, is the prime example of that. She's really a remarkable woman, and I could do a, a whole presentation just on her. Uh, but I, I, one of the, in my travels of doing the speaking, I, and you, you know also that I have a little bit of a theater background. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've hooked up with a couple of casts of the Diary of Anne Frank mm. and spoken to them and shared my story and, and, and shared mm. uh, some other, uh, kind of give them a, a little bit of insight and, and, People would ask me, you know, what do you think Anne Frank would be like as an adult and as an old woman at this point? Hmm. And I say, I don't have to wonder. I know what she would be like. She would be like my Aunt Eva because she, she's smart and she's funny. She's a brilliant lady. And um, but my Aunt Eva obviously did not live up to her potential as, a, as, a, as, a, as what she could have been because of way she was traumatized by the war. Now, she had a very successful life. She was a translator for a, a, um, a chemical company for many years um, and had a great life and still has a great life. Um, but she was traumatized in a way that would cannot be fully healed. Yeah. You know, and my dad was in therapy for many years as well. So even those, you know, people, people will say, well, yeah, she... Uh, she didn't, uh, she got to stay with her sister. She didn't uh, see a camp. Uh, she didn't see death uh, and all that. But that's not a, a prerequisite for being affected and traumatized. By, you know, uh, one story actually that I left out um, was when uh, the two girls um, befriended some people in the resistance. And they were at a holding camp, or they were at a, an auditorium that's now a museum in Amsterdam, where they would hold them before they would take them to the train. And they, these people, these resistance people, got my aunts off the list of the transport list. But then they did a surprise roll call and said, "Everyone has to, you know, stand up or whatever." And they rushed them into the bathroom, and they were sitting in a stall. Well, the Nazis came into the bathroom and it's like a movie. They're going through every stall, looking at every stall. Finally, they opened the one and they saw my aunt Eva pretending to help my aunt Henny put her pants back on after going to the bathroom. And 
they just kind of stared at them for a second and without even checking to who to see if they belong what it is they just closed the door and left them there mm. and then they they you know the everyone left and then they got somehow got them back out in the woods and they were on the morning again so they had a couple of close calls like that um and of course my dad had the close call with the broken leg yeah but it didn't take you to see the horrors I heard stories of people wrapping their babies up in like cloth and throwing them in the snow and then going back the next day to get them because they would have killed them otherwise. Mm. I mean, you know, th those are stories that are a little too intense for the younger crowds, but stories that the older people need to see and hear for sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I wanted to ask also, um, it sounds like your dad was able to kind of find some fulfillment or like it might have been kind of rewarding for him to be able to connect with kids like you were talking about before and i was curious what has been the most rewarding part of sharing your father's story with the world um for you hmm. um there's a couple of things first of all every time i've asked to speak and it's been a while because of covid um i go over actually it just happened you know preparing for this is that I go over my notes, I reread my speech, I make any kind of tweaks that I need to do uh, for the specific audience I'm speaking to. And it always is like I'm spending some time with my dad again. So that that is a real personal thing that I, I get to, you know, I bounce things off of him in my head. And, you know, sometimes I say, too bad, dad, I'm doing it this way or whatever. I'm in charge now. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's, that's, that's like more of a, a personal reward. Uh, but the biggest reward is to see the, the expressions on people's faces who really haven't been exposed to the story before. Not my dad's, but just the Holocaust story in general. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I go to my dad was one of the younger ones and he was mobile and was willing. And so he would go to various uh, remote locations all across, mostly the Midwest. But then he went out to California and Texas and some others. And. So he was able to do that. And I've kind of picked up that mantle from him because whenever they need someone out in central Illinois or something, they send me. So I went out and it was Douglas County, Douglas because south of Springfield was my first speaking engagement after I was trained. Hmm. And um, they had it set up for like 75 people and they had publicized it. They put it in the... Uh, a local news a reporter called me like a week before and they put a newspaper article in there. At 75 seats, 250 people showed up. Wow. So the place was packed and there were people sitting all over the place. Uh, Andy, my wife, was Facebooking it live. It went really well. And I, I love, like I said, the expression on the face because these are people that had not really, did not really know what the stories were. Yeah. And then as my dad loved to do it, and I kind of carried on the tradition is the, the question and answer period afterwards. And I opened it up to questions. And there's always a little bit of a silence before everyone gets the nerve to do it. And there was a little girl sitting on the floor in front of the first row and she put her hand up. I'm guessing she was maybe 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. And I said, yes, you have a question. And she said, yes. How do we make it so this doesn't happen again? And uh, very first question, my very first speech, and I was kind of taken aback. I mean, very intelligent question. It's a huge. It's the question, yeah. you know. And I got it first off, so I thought about it for a second, and I said, "Well, I, I hate to do this to you, but it's it's on you, and it's on everybody in this room to keep the stories alive and to keep to let people know that it really did happen, why it happened." And that, and how people are were affected by it. So it's up to you to remember what I told you today, mm. and to share that with the people, with with people, for the rest of your life. And that's how we stop it, you know, mm. prevent it from happening again. Um, so those kind of things are, are really rewarding. Uh, I love doing that, um, and I love carrying on his name and his his tradition. I mean, he at the museum was a superstar. He would fill in, but he was all. He also manned the desk twice a week, the front counter, you know, to show people. And I got this was a year ago, so it was like three years after his death. I got a 
I think it was a Facebook message from a young lady who said that she went to the museum with her mother when she was like 12 years old. Never heard of the Holocaust, didn't know anything about it. Her mother took him, took her almost on a whim, is the impression that I got. And she met my father at the desk. They spent a lot of time together. And I think she, he even walked them through the museum. And so my dad is this woman's hero and is dedicated, you know, and is now like um, volunteering, not at the museum, but in, in, in other areas. And she sent me a picture from that first day. And, you know, and that's the kind of effect that, she, that he had on people that came through that museum, whether they heard him speak and share his story or not. Um, and, I, and actually, now that I'm telling that story, I remember her telling me that he, she walked up to the counter with her mother and her mother said, my daughter would like to meet a survivor. And my dad said, this is your lucky day. I'm a survivor. Wow. And they were fast friends and they were, they kept in touch. And, and you know, I think, and I, and, you know, one of the points of the story is I never heard of this woman. You know, I never, I never knew that story. And, and you know what? I'm not sure how much my dad would remember. I th I'm sure she, he would remember her because they kept in contact. But my point is that this happened a lot. Yeah. And that he made that kind of huge impact on, on a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, we've kept in touch loosely. And I, I sent her um, my dad's ties. I got, I got uh, custody of all his ties. <laughs> so it's... Uh, <laughs> And I actually, um, well, I won't play it, but I, I sent her one of my, one of my dad's times. She was very, very moved to have uh, oh, that, that uh, memorabilia. That's, yeah. that's, that's the kind of impact. And that's, you know, when I, I tell people too, I tell crowd, uh, groups that I speak to that as much as I enjoy speaking and, and, and know the importance of this, I would much rather be in the audience listening to my dad speak than hearing. But obviously, that can happen and that's happening every day, not every day, but regularly I get an email from the museum and other survivors pass, you know, and they're getting older and they're getting even, you know, just not able to do what it takes um, to speak. So it's, that's why it's incumbent on my generation and your generation, and et cetera, to, to keep it going. And, and thankfully we have the museum, which has turned from that storefront uh, shop and Skokie yeah. that sold a couple of books and tchotchkes to this incredible building um, and institution that uh, is known, you know, why one of my dad's proudest moments was being at the opening of the big mm -hmm. museum. Uh, President Clinton was there and other wow. dignitaries and a uh, uh, big thrill for him and, and for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also just opening my eyes a little bit to hear about people that don't know what the Holocaust is or didn't know um, until interacting with your dad or with other survivors. Because I think just as Jews, we, we learned about it from such a young age. So I think that just highlights the need to talk about it even more, that there are so many people who just don't know about it as well. Yeah. I think yeah. it's easy to forget that people don't know as much as, I mean, I don't even know as much as some people, but I feel like being Jewish, like you said, like we have more of a knowledge about it, like from temple and stuff. So I think, yeah, yeah. like Remembrance Day every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were talking earlier about what uh, you know was most rewarding. And I think one of the most rewarding nights I've had since I started speaking was speaking at uh, the village of Niles um, at their uh, board meeting. Um, they, I was still in touch with some people in Niles and my dad never spoke in Niles. That's where we grew up. Um, and then he moved out and then spoke in Wheeling and some other places. Uh, but a, a friend of mine knows the mayor and knows the people there. And, and my dad made a big impression on our neighborhood, especially kind of after the fact, they didn't know while we were living there, his experiences. And then they were all amazed by his story. Mm. So. I got it so I would speak in front of the village hall and we invited all our old neighbors and all our old friends and all that. And then they took it a step further and uh, did a, um, a dedication, uh, um, an honorary naming of our old street, my dad. So it's now called Joe Coek Way, really? uh, the oh, street that we grew awesome. up. Yeah, but that was mm. really uh, 
really impactful. And now my hope is that um, that when people look at that and they see Joe Coe Way, they'll say, oh, who's Joe Coe Way? What is that? And if they Google that, then they'll come up and see his story. Mm-hmm. And they'll be exposed to, to, to his experiences. And that's just another way of keeping the story alive for generations. Because as far as we know, that's a permanent structure up there. And that Joe Coeck way will be up there forever. And so people years from now will look at that and be able to, to, to learn about his story and what happened to it. That's so special to see that probably every time you pass that area. <laughs> yeah, I don't, and you know, I don't, I live in Naperville and that's in Niles. So that's, that's a bit of a way, but yeah. my, my mother-in-law lives in, in the area and every time we're close, we'll go by there and look uh, at it and, and take a picture. So yeah, yeah it's, really? it's, it's very special. It's very mm. special. And you know, the other thing is that that also got some publicity, you know, and that mm. that's what it's about. It's not about getting publicity for me, but to hear the story and to have it be on Channel 7 News uh, and BBM Radio and some other, you know, local news stations, that's how you keep the story going. Mm-hmm. So it, it's those kind of events and those hooks as a marketing guy that I look for to try <laughs> to uh, get the word out. I mean, we had, Andy and I were going to be co-producing a production of the Diary of Anne Frank. Oh, and we had the museum on board and they were going to be sponsoring it and all this and then COVID hit. Oh, so uh, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll be able to reboot that at some point mm-hmm. and be able to do that. But that's those are the ways that you, uh, like we've been saying uh, the whole time, to keep the stories going and to expose it to as many people who haven't heard it as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have recommendations for people who want to learn more or just about, not just about the Holocaust, but just like current human rights violations today, as well as the Holocaust and like where can, especially for young adults, since that's like our, our target audience, like where do you think people can start to just learn more? Sure. I think that, and I've mentioned it a few times, and I'm a member of their Speakers Bureau, but I don't work for them. Uh, but the, <laughs> the Illinois Holocaust Museum is, is, is the best resource that I know of, because they don't just deal in the Holocaust, they deal in other atrocities and other um, uh, events around the world for, you know, for freedom and for rights. Uh, they always have exhibits that have nothing to do with the Holocaust. Uh, they were getting ready to, or they actually had uh, their uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, oh, cool. exhibit, and they actually were in the process of of uh, trying to get her to, to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, she passed away, and then COVID hit, or vice versa. Um, but they they their their website is awesome, and um, they're they're open again. Uh, so I think it's to appointment, but certainly once we get going again. Um, they are, for my money, the, the, the best resource uh, in this area. Um, you know, we, we live in the digital age with online resources in, in abundance as well. One little qualifier, I'm by no means uh, an expert in World War II or the Holocaust. I know my dad's story and I put it out there. Um, but, you know, I just encourage everyone to do your own research and to... Um, learn you know as much as you can and that museum really is is the ideal place uh to learn about the holocaust and and other similar uh similar things like that and if you ever go to the holocaust museum there's a section on the dutch um the dutch resistance and the dutch holocaust the dutch um the world war ii in holland is the mm-hmm. section and there's a picture of Anne Frank and right across there is a picture of my dad uh, in his Cub Scout uniform from when he was in Holland as a little boy. So, yeah. Wow. But they also have, you know, books and other resources in their gift shop and online uh, that will get you going. And they have a, a really a great staff that will uh, facilitate any kind of discussion and any kind of uh, topic. Uh, on the subject. So that, that would be my number one uh, resource for anyone looking to, to get more information on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know when we talked about planning this episode, you said there's, I think it was at that museum, there's like virtual survivor talks. 
Yeah, it's a hologram. So you can actually, and many of them have passed. They filmed it before they died. Yeah. And you can mm-hmm. go and talk and, you know, you hear their speech in a hologram form. And you can even ask them questions and they'll respond um, so to your cool. question. Wow. So it's like, wow, well, I haven't seen it yet. My dad was not involved in that. Uh, but I've heard it's just just amazing. And that's mm-hmm. so, you know, they're, that's a great point that they're, they're on the technological edge too, that their exhibits aren't just your normal um museum exhibit that you're walking and reading. They really try to immerse you in it. And the museum is really set up beautifully where the the first half of the main exhibit is dark. Even the exterior of the building, if you look at the pictures, half of it is black. And then the Mm -hmm. second half is white and lighter as uh, the war was over and the liberation happened. So there's a lot of thought and effort and very intense um, experience to go through that. They have one of the actual cattle cars uh, that uh, mm. very like, you know, like the kind that both of my grandparents went on to, to put Auschwitz um, and lots of other artifacts and um, some incredible stories there too. So uh, I would highly recommend anybody interested in the topic, which I have on my own. I've been at the one in DC, which is also wonderful. That's huge. That one is a little tougher to manage. It's multiple levels. Mm-hmm. And it's, I found it a little bit overwhelming, but fascinating. Mm-hmm. They have some great, great exhibits there. But, um, uh, so there, there are, even if you're not in the Chicagoland area, there's one in LA, there's one in Houston, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, uh, they're all over the place and they have online resources as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did go to it, I think in like middle school. So it's been years, but I'm the feeling. The Chicago one? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know and that. And I, from what I remember, it was really cool. And I I feel inspired to want to go again, especially if it's yeah. open right now. Yeah, yeah I, I believe I believe it. Don't quote me on that, but I believe it is. Uh, they were planning on opening, mm-hmm. uh, at least for, you know, appointment or however. But yeah. I would check that out first. But um yeah, it's, it's a great experience. And, and, you know, I've been through it, been through the museum, probably uh, the main exhibit, probably six, seven times. And, of course, you always find something new. Uh, they mix things up, but there's just so much in there that you're not going to catch it. And it's so overwhelming and emotionally intense that you're not going to catch everything the first time. And they have rotating exhibits, too, down the basement. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're great. And they uh, they they're attitude of keeping the discussion going is really what it's all about yeah and it sounds like they're doing a lot to prolong the discussion as well and keep it going so that's absolutely and they're on the cutting edge i mean they're um you know they're they're talking about what's happening now as well as what happened in the past and Mm. you know the 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 solution to a lot of this is to talk is to is communication, put a microphone. Because when you actually talk to people um, and get the discussion going, it's really hard to um, have an a, a opposing viewpoint on the way we approach these things. So that's that's the key is to keep the discussion going. And that's what this does. And that's what I hope to do, to keep doing uh, with these presentations. So, And if anyone has a group or a school or uh, and a group of friends or whatever, uh, you know, I'm always willing to, to speak. I've spoken in front of uh, a group of 10 people and I've spoken in front of hundreds. So, you know what? Mm-hmm. Very funny. Maybe we can end with this. That time in Wheeling, which technically and logistically was a nightmare. I'll have you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we were having big problems. And when we were, when we were first talking with my dad, he's like, well, how many people are going to show up? I said, I have no idea. I mean, what? What do you think? You know, is, is, is you have a minute? You know, what are your thoughts on that? And he said, you know what? If five people show up, I'll speak. If 300 people show up, I'll speak. Yeah. And that's the attitude you got to have. If one person wants to hear the story, it's worth it. It's your obligation to tell the story. So mm. yeah. that's, the, that's the attitude. Mm. Oh, well. I just want to thank you so much, not only for coming on the podcast, but just for the work that you're doing to really carry your father's legacy forward. And mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to offer a space if there's anything else you wanted to say before we before we sign off. Um, 
nothing comes to mind other than to uh, get to that museum. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't I can't say it enough. And that um, you know, again, uh, any any groups or schools, uh, you can go through the museum or or go through the Perlman Gals. Uh, be more than happy uh, to help out. But, uh, you know, in, in knowing you two all your life and uh, all your lives and uh, seeing you grow up and some of them from afar, um, really proud of what you've done with this. And it was real, but I'm really honored that, that you asked me to be on this today. So thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, we're Honestly. honored to have you and to connect again. It's been a little while. Yeah. <laughs> it has. It's tough. You got to make the effort these days, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much. This was really powerful to hear again and talk more about um, everything with you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. It was really fun. All right. So that was quite a recording session, I would say. Um, I feel like I learned so much from Steve. Um, And just hearing the story again, I think, was really powerful for me to just Mm -hmm. um, hear joe's words and also hear steve's perspective as his son yeah so um thank you again to steve for being so gracious with his time to share this um important story and i think um you know unfortunately we live in a world where hate is still present there's still Mm -hmm. people who hate other people who have racism anti-semitism prejudice um, sexism sexism whatever it may be there's still people that are hurting others so I think as Steve talked about like telling these stories is something that we can't stop doing um we should continue having these conversations um for years and years to come Mm. um and just be mindful of the current human rights violations that happen every single day and to try our best to be as educated as we can and be advocates for um, others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so in the meantime, we, as Steve said, hope that you, if you're in the Chicagoland area um, or in the Midwest, maybe make a trip to the Holocaust Museum um, in Skokie, Illinois. Um, I definitely want to make a return visit after listening to Steve. Um, And um, we are going to definitely include some resources in the um, description to help anyone else find more information. All right. And so thank you again for being here and peace. peace.